Good morning. You can make your way back to your seat. My name's Carmen. I'm one of the staff members here at Daybreak. And as Rick mentioned just a little bit ago, we are continuing this Resolute series that we've been working through, following Jesus on his journey to the cross. And we've been looking at different snapshots of Jesus' life throughout the course of the series. And the theme verse for this particular series, it comes from Luke 9, where it says that as the time approached for Jesus to get ready to return to heaven, he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And so today we're kind of turning a corner in this series because now we're in Jerusalem, okay? So Jesus had resolutely set out for Jerusalem the whole way through his life. He kind of had that cross in mind, knowing that this was his mission, this was what he was heading towards, and now he's in Jerusalem. In his final days, he knows what's going to unfold in the next few days, and the message specifically that we're going to be looking at today is the night before Jesus was arrested. And in that night, on that night, Jesus led well, but not in the way that anyone would have expected him to lead. And our message today is about what it looks like, what it means to be a servant leader. And so I think that we need to kind of get started by talking about what do we mean by leadership? Because our culture has all kinds of different messages about what it means to be a leader. And if we're honest, I think a lot of us are kind of skeptical of this leadership concept, especially when it comes to public leadership. I stumbled across a um, quote this week that kind of made me chuckle a little bit by Douglas Adams, who is an author, and he says, it is a well-known fact that those people who most want to rule people are, in fact, those least suited to do it. Anyone who is capable of getting themselves made president should on no account be allowed to do the job. (laughs) That made me chuckle just a little bit. I think also we think about leadership in the context of our workplaces, and we get a little skeptical sometimes there of what leadership is. And I know my husband is a big Dilbert fan, So I brought one little strip to share with you this morning on what some people see as leadership in the workplace. The pointy here boss here says, I'm moving to a shared leadership model. Each of you will take on one piece of the leadership role. And Dilbert says, what's my piece? The pointy here boss says, let's see, I have you down for something called blame. (laughs) That is his piece of the shared leadership. But I think we get a lot of messages in our culture about what leadership is and what it means. And I think a lot of us can relate to Dilbert and and, um, some of the other skepticism pieces about what is leadership. And some of us are saying, I don't know that I want to have anything to do with that kind of leadership. And I never really saw myself as that kind of a leader. I don't see myself as having um, leadership position or authority or anything of that sort. So I don't know that leadership applies to me. But what I would like to do to start today is kind of redefine what we mean by leadership. Now, I'm currently pursuing a master's degree in um, leadership development through Evangelical Seminary. And so I'm going to share with you a little tidbit that I'm learning through my coursework. And I'm going to offer it to you for free. So I've just saved you $20,000 today. So you're welcome. (laughs) Price of admission, it was worth it today, right? But one of the themes that I notice just keeps running through all that I'm learning and processing on leadership is this, is that leadership isn't so much about what you do as it is about who you are. Leadership isn't so much about what you do as about who you are. And yes, there are skills to be learned and that kind of thing, but at the end of the day, who you bring as a person to the table is what matters most. And I think the most simple definition that I can give of leadership is that leadership is the process of influencing the world around you in a positive way. Leadership is influencing the world around you in a positive way, improving the condition of humanity in some form or another. 
And I think the majority of that kind of influence comes from the person that we are, the person that we bring to the table more than the tasks that we perform. And I think if we're going to define leadership that way, then I think we can all say that we all lead in one capacity or another. Because we all have the potential to influence the people around us. We all do influence the people around us. We influence in our families. We influence in our workplaces. We influence with our neighbors and our schools and our communities. We influence. And when you influence, you change the environment around you. And that is leadership. And I think we hold a huge potential to be able to lead well in those environments, to be the kind of person that brings a healing presence, that brings peace to places like that. Or we also have a huge potential to be able to lead poorly, to influence poorly in those environments, and to be the kind of person that brings discouragement or criticism or judgment or stress or anxiety to the people around us. And I don't know about you, but I want to be the kind of person that learns how to lead well, to influence my little corner of the world in a way that brings positive change, to be the kind of a person that brings that healing presence, that it's actually healing for people to be around me because of the way that Jesus is working in my life and changing me and the way that my life reflects who he is to the world around us. And that is exactly the kind of leadership that Jesus brought. That is exactly what he modeled Jesus was a phenomenal leader because he carried phenomenal influence. Hands down, undisputed, there is no other person in history who had more influence on the world than Jesus Christ. Whether you believe that he was who he said that he was or not, there is no disputing that there is no one else in all of history who had more influence than Jesus. And what kind of leadership did he bring to this world? Was it power and authority? No, he had those things, But that's not how he interacted with people. He didn't interact with them by lording the power and the authority over them. How did he lead? He led by laying down his life. He led by serving well. And that's what influenced the world like no one else had ever seen. In Isaiah 53, it gives us a picture of Jesus on his way to the cross. And it gives us a good picture of what his life was defined by. This leadership that he offered, this influence that he offered by the way he interacted with the world and the the role that he took. And this is what it says in Isaiah 53. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Do you hear that influence coming through? He's changing the world around him for something better by his sacrifice. He's influencing us in a positive, healing way. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is a picture of the kind of leadership, the kind of influence that Jesus brought. It was a servant leadership, an act of laying down his life for the people around him. And so that's what we're going to look at today, a snapshot of Jesus' life when he modeled this in such a beautiful way that we can kind of take this story apart piece by piece and look at it today, of what does it look like for us then to follow Jesus' model of leadership, to influence the world around us by serving well? What does it look like for us to take the lead? So the first thing we want to talk about today is that taking the lead rises from a secure identity. 
taking the lead rises from a secure identity. Now, we're going to be looking at a passage from John chapter 13 today, so if you have your Bible with you, you can open to that chapter, because we'll be hanging out in that particular chapter today. And it begins John 13 with um, verse 1 saying this, It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his authority, under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. Now there is so much in this passage that we could talk about. We could talk about this for the next six weeks, I think. But we're not. We're going to focus on one part of this passage. But the part that is particularly poignant to me in this particular passage is this whole idea of identity. That Jesus knew who he was. He knew that authority had come to him from God. He knew that he had come from God, that he was returning to God. And that little word, I want you to circle the beginning of verse 4, that little word that says so. He knew who he was, so he got up and he put a towel around his waist And he began to serve. It doesn't say he knew who he was. He had all this power and all of this authority. So in spite of that, in spite of how important he was, in spite of all of these important things that Jesus was, then he decided that he would go ahead and serve. It's saying, no, he knew who he was. So he was able to serve. He was able to lay aside any pretenses of needing to lord his authority over other people. Because he was so secure in who he was. He served from a a secure identity. And just to give you a little bit of context of what is going on culturally in this story as well, as he's getting ready to wash his disciples' feet, you might be familiar with this passage to know that. And in this passage, the context of foot washing was um, a pretty big deal. It was expected in that culture that someone would wash feet. But it was not expected that any Jewish person would ever wash feet. Even the Jewish slaves were not required to wash feet. That was a task set aside for the Gentile slaves. Because the Jewish people had a lot of rules about purity. You can look through Leviticus to learn all about that if you want to. There were a lot of rules about that. So even a Jewish slave didn't wash feet. Only Gentiles. And here Jesus gets up and did it. The other thing contextually that I want you to understand is that when it says that he took his outer robe off and wrapped a towel around his waist, there's a lot of cultural significance to that too because when a slave served in that culture, there was a a representation of taking off the outer robe that was essentially saying, I am stripping myself of my own identity. I'm stripping myself of any um, authority or any self-identification. I'm taking off my outer robe so that I become nothing. I have nothing of my own so that I can fully honor the one that I am intended to serve. And so this is what Jesus is doing too. (laughs) He's taking off any earthly identity that he would have had to say, I am fully at your service. And he could do that because he knew who he was. Now, it was expected that someone was going to wash feet in this scenario. It was customary that before the meal, feet would get washed. And so the foot washing supplies were there in the room. But everyone who filed into the room that night, 
everyone walked right past those foot washing supplies. Why did they do it? Because no one considered that it would ever be their job to do a task like that, not even a blip on the radar screen thinking that I'm the one who should take responsibility to pick up this stuff and go ahead and do it. And the best modern day example that I can think of to give you to kind of understand what that would be would be if you would walk into a public restroom and you'd open the door to the stall and you saw all kinds of nastiness in there, someone had gotten sick in there or something, what do you do? You back up, you close the door, and you look for another one, right? It doesn't ever occur to you that you should be going, oh, wait, where's the bucket? Let me go find some rubber gloves and snap those guys on so that I can go clean this up. If you're feeling particularly generous that day, you might say, I'm going to go find someone at the mall security to tell them that there's something that needs to be cleaned up in there. But you don't go look for the bucket or the gloves. And that's kind of the same thing that's happening here. The disciples walk right past it because they're like, no, 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 that rubber glove job, that's not, it's like the stall. Back out, not going there. It wouldn't even occur to them that it was their job. And that's why it's particularly shocking that Jesus does this. Because no one else would have even considered that it was their role. And then here is their Lord and their master getting ready to wash their feet. He's the one who's supposed to be the Messiah, the Savior, the one who's going to rule. Remember, just not long before this, they're arguing over who's going to sit at the right and the left of his throne. They think he's bringing in a kingdom that is going to put Rome out of the way and usher in this whole new political system that the Jews are going to enjoy, and Jesus is going to be the head authority over all of this earthly kingdom, and that they're going to serve with him. He is a leader. He has authority. He has position. He's going to have power. He's not the guy who gets down and cleans up the bathroom stalls. That's not a job for someone like him. But Jesus is saying this is exactly the job that I'm doing because he doesn't care about the status and the reputation of it all. He knows who he is, and he knows that who he is is something far beyond any reputation any concern of what other people may think of him. His identity goes far beyond that. He's not striving. He's not grasping. He's not trying to prove to someone else who he is. He's just saying, this is who I am. I know who I am. And so I don't need to prove myself to anyone. When we know who we are, and even more importantly, when we know whose we are, It changes the way that we interact with people because we stop struggling and striving and elbowing for position and acceptance and some sort of relational positioning. We can put all that aside. We don't need that because we know who we are. And if you are a follower of Christ, you have been given an identity in Christ. Christ says, all that I am I share with you. You are now adopted as sons and daughters of God, my brothers and my sisters, and we are sharing this identity together. This is who you are. You don't need to go make an identity on your own that you try to look for all sorts of validation in different places in this world. And trust me, I did that for way too long in my life where I was trying to find validation and find some identity in myself according to if I hung out with the right people, if I performed well enough in the right tasks, if I did this the right way or that the right way or had the right stuff or looked the right way, and somehow that was going to feed who I was and tell me who I was. And Jesus is saying, you don't need that. 
because I've given you an identity. This world tells us just the opposite. It says you're not enough. You're not successful enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not smart enough. You're not fit enough. You're not rich enough. You don't have enough stuff. You're just not enough. And Jesus says, no, let me tell you who you are. You are enough. I love you just as you are. And so I wonder why we should ever feel abandoned when John 1.12 tells me that I am God's child and Hebrews 13.5 tells me that I am not alone. Why should I feel rejected when 1 Corinthians 6.20 tells me that I belong to God and Ephesians 1.4 tells me that I was chosen in God before the creation of the world? Why should I feel condemned when Ephesians 1.8 says that I am forgiven and Romans 8.1 says that I am not condemned? Why should I feel unimportant when Matthew 5.13 says that I am salt and I am light in this world? Why should I feel insignificant when Ephesians 3.12 says that I can approach the throne of grace with confidence? Why should I feel stuck in sin when Romans 8.2 says that I have been set free from the power of sin and death? Why should I feel controlled by an out-of-control thought life when 1 Corinthians 2.16 says that I possess the mind of Christ? Why should I feel unlovable when Colossians 3.12 says that I am chosen and I am dearly loved? Why should I feel defeated when 1 John 5.4 says that in Christ I am victorious? Why should I feel incapable when Romans 8.37 says that I am more than a conqueror? Why should I feel afraid when 2 Timothy 1.7 says that I have not been given the spirit of fear but I've been given this, the power of love and a sound mind. Why should I ever doubt the grace that flows from God to me out to the world around me when Ephesians 2, 7 says that I have been shown the incomparable riches of God's grace? Friends, this is who we are. This is who we are. We have been given an identity, and I want you to understand that in more than just a way that can read a whole bunch of Bible verses and process it in your mind. I want you to understand that in the context of a relationship with the living God, because that's what solidified Jesus' identity, was his relationship with the Father, not just knowing all of the scriptures, but knowing them in the context of a living relationship with his Father. And I want to give you a moment just to sit and soak that in a little bit today. And so if you would, I'd like you to close your eyes for just a minute. And I want you to sit and I want you to reflect on the things that are most likely to derail your sense of identity. The things that most often make you forget who you are in Christ. What is that area of insecurity for you? Do you feel abandoned? Like no one's there for you? Do you feel rejected? Maybe unimportant? Insignificant? Like what you do, just it never matters? Do you feel stuck? Same place, same things, over and over again. Do you feel unlovable? Like it's never quite enough, no matter what you do, do you feel defeated? Maybe you feel incapable. You just quite, can't quite ever get it together. What is that area for you that you are most likely to feel like it's just not enough? And now I want you to 
sit in that space just a little bit, and I want you to imagine in your mind's eye, keep your eyes closed, and imagine in your mind's eye that Jesus walks over to you with a towel wrapped around his waist. And he kneels in front of you, and he picks up your foot, and he cradles it in his hand, and he begins to wash it. Imagine what that feels like in that moment to have Jesus in front of you washing your foot. And then he looks up at you and he says, you are my child and I will never leave you alone. You belong to God and you were chosen before the creation of the world. You were forgiven and I will never condemn you. You're salt and you're light in this world. Through me, you can approach the throne of God, the throne of the Father with confidence because you have been set free. I've given you my mind. I've shared my mind with you so that you can learn to think like I think. You were chosen. You are dearly loved. In me, you are victorious and you are more than a conqueror. And so you don't need to live this life in a spirit of fear, but in a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind. In me, the grace flows. Let me wash your feet. You can open your eyes. It's a beautiful thing to know who you are, to know who God says that you are, and not just with your mind, but with the God who gets in front of you, touches you, is a very real and practical part of your life. It is a beautiful thing. And when we get to that place, then it frees us. It frees us from the struggling and the striving and the positioning and the elbowing and all of the jockeying for position that we feel like we need to do relationally with other people. And it frees us to simply be able to influence well because the Spirit of God flows through us to the world around us. And that is influencing the world for good. That is servant leadership. Know who you are. It will change the way you influence the world around you. Taking the lead also compels us to go the extra mile. Taking the lead compels us to go the extra mile. If you continue in this passage from John 13, he says, After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, Peter said, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you will have no part with me. Then Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said, not everyone 
was clean. Okay, so Jesus gets down, wraps the towel around his waist, and he's going over and he's going to wash the feet of his disciples. Now, feet are kind of skanky, aren't they? I spent a little bit too much time with feet in recent months. Um, my oldest broke his toe not too long ago, and so we've been taking care of that, and it's like all black and blue and swollen and working through that. So I've been looking at his feet. Then my daughter stubbed her toe, and she actually split the nail right up through the center. And so as that's healing, like the little like pieces are like curling off and like falling off. So we're dealing with that, and that's just nasty. Then just this past week, my other son nailed his toe on something, so he's got this big black and blue toe too. And I'm like, I've had more feet than I've wanted to have. When they were little, their little tootsie toes were just cute and sweet, but that didn't last long. (laughs) They're just nasty now. By the time you get to 12, the odor that comes off of feet is just a very different thing than it was when they were six weeks old. So feet just aren't something that are pleasant to interact with, right? We all know this. But Jesus gets right in there to the unpleasant parts, the nasty parts, the dirty parts, And he begins to wash their feet. And don't miss the significance that he was doing more than just washing their feet. There's more than just the nastiness of the feet that Jesus was addressing when he knelt before them. It was all of those places inside of them that were somewhat unappealing and unattractive. And Jesus is addressing all of that even for the men that were there that night that didn't deserve it. He knew, it says right there in this passage, he knew that one was going to betray him. He didn't deserve to have his feet washed by Jesus. He knew another was going to deny him. He didn't deserve to have his feet washed, right? Another was going to doubt him. And those are just three that we know about. We don't even know what the other ones were thinking that Jesus knew. These men, they didn't deserve to have their master kneel at their feet and wash their feet. And if it had been me, uh, there's no way. I made it to Jerusalem. I've been investing my life in these guys the last three years. It's been a hard road. I know what the next couple of days are going to hold for me. It's going to be difficult. And you know what? I just deserve to sit back and have a nice meal tonight and not worry about anything else. Someone owes me that much, right? I am not going the extra mile, especially not for these guys. That would have been my attitude. Well, enough. This is my night. (laughs) Mom's night out. This is what I need tonight. I don't want to go the extra mile for anyone else tonight. Especially for those that don't deserve it. But what does Jesus do for those that don't deserve it? Apparently, he goes the extra mile. Apparently, he gets down and he washes their feet. And it's crazy, isn't it, when you think about the implications of that kind of grace in your own life? When you think about the people that are most undeserving and getting down and washing their feet, because that's not how it's supposed to be done, right? People are supposed to deserve your efforts or earn your efforts, the gifts that you offer. They need to prove that they're going to be respectable and responsible with the things that you offer them, because what if I give them money and they don't use it responsibly? That wouldn't be good. What if I offer them something and they don't appreciate it? That's just teaching them to not be appreciative and just look for handouts, right? Those people aren't deserving. They don't even appreciate my gift. I might go the first mile, but depending on how you react to me, I don't know that I'm going any further than that. It all depends on how much you deserve me going the second mile for you, right? We do this. You know that we do this. 
We do it especially in our families. I'm a little embarrassed to admit this, but years back, early on in our marriage, um, I was making dinner one night, and my husband really likes fried onions. Me, not so much, not a fan. But I decided I was going to make fried onions for him to put on his. I would tell you that it was steak, but we were too poor to afford steak at the time, so I think it was a hamburger. So I decided I'm going to make the extra effort, and I'm going to fry up some onions, and I'm going to serve onions to this guy, and he is going to love this because he loves fried onions. So, and I didn't ask him if he wanted fried onions that night, but I just, as a surprise, I'm going to make them for him. So I make these fried onions, and I put them on the table, and guess what? He didn't eat those onions. He wasn't hungry for onions that night. And I was like, are you kidding me? I made this. You're going to eat the darn onions because I made them. You owe me eating these onions because I made them for you. And you're supposed to be appreciative of that. What a jerk that you're not eating. And I'm embarrassed to tell you that in my spitefulness and my pettiness, it was years before I made him fried onions ever again. <laughs> ever again. We do this. I go the extra mile if you appreciate my effort, but if you don't, mm -mm, I'm cutting you off. And then I have to stop and consider, how much grace have I received in my own life? And what example did Jesus set? He did not see servanthood as a commodity to be exchanged. That I do my part if you do your part. He modeled it as pure and simple grace, just pouring it out. And I have received so much of that grace from God. He has poured out his grace unto me. When I have been the doubter, not deserving, because I've doubted who he really is. When I've been the denier, when I've resisted an association with Jesus because of what it might cost me personally. He poured out his grace even when I've been a betrayer, letting my own self-interest trump my commitment to him, denying him. Even undeserved, he has poured out his grace to me. He uncovered those most undesirable, stinkiest, nastiest, footyish kind of places in my life and said, even these I'm going to wash, not because you deserved it, but because this is what it looks like to lay down your life for someone. This is what it looks like to influence the world around you, to serve those around you, not because it's deserved, but just because grace goes the extra mile. And that's the kind of influence that makes a difference in the world around us. When we are willing to just put ourselves aside and say, I am pouring it out, whether you deserve it or not, I'm going to serve you and serve you well. That makes a difference in the world. It changes the world for good. That's taking the lead. Final way we're going to talk about taking the lead today is that taking the lead brings the living Christ personally and powerfully. Taking the lead brings the living Christ personally and powerfully. John 13 continues. It says, When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. And now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. 
I've set an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. So Jesus is saying, you know what? I got down. I modeled for you what this is supposed to look like. Now you go and you do the same. You follow my example. But here's the thing that I want us to understand about this example that Jesus set. I don't think it was just about the feet here. I don't think that's what he's mostly telling them to remember. I think what he wants them to remember is that the posture in which you serve is more important than the task specifically that you perform. I try to imagine what it would have been like for the disciples when they thought back on that night, the next day, the next week, the next month, the next year, at the end of their lifetime. I would imagine that that night was burned into their memory. And what did they remember about that night? I don't think that when they had conversations with each other, they were going, hey, you remember that night that our feet got really clean? Remember how clean our feet were that night? Wasn't that, who was that that did that for us? I don't know, but man, my feet were clean. No, I don't think that's what they remembered. What was burned into their mind for the rest of their lives, I'm sure, was this image of Jesus, the Son of God, taking a towel and wrapping it around his waist and getting on his knees before them and washing their feet. That's what they would remember. And I also have to imagine that from Jesus' perspective, his primary concern was not about podiatric hygiene. (laughs) That wasn't his main concern that night. I don't think he walked into that room and looked around saying, well, these men have dirty feet, and I need to, by golly, clean their feet. I'm going to be the one to do that. Feet, that's what I'm going to clean. Instead, I think he walked into that room And he surveyed the room, and he looked at each of those men, each of those men who was undeserving in one way or another, and he looked at them and he said, how can I show them that I love them? And I imagine that as he looked around the room, his eyes fell in that foot-washing basin. And I could imagine what triggered in his heart was feet. Feet. I can wash their feet because by washing their feet, that will speak volumes to them about who they are to me, about what they mean to me. You see, I don't think it was so much about the task itself, but it was the posture in which he went about the task. And I realized that I have so much to learn about what it means to serve and to love others well, to get to the place where I can look around my own little corner of the world and say, what can I do? to show them that I love them. Not just running frantic, crazy. What can I do? What needs to be done? What tasks need to be done? What thing, what, um, all of that craziness, not that. But saying, what can I do to show that I love? And will that often translate to a practical task? Yeah, it probably will. But the big difference is the motivation behind it. Am I looking around my corner of the world and saying, how can I serve and love well. And when I get to that place where I can do that, I think that's when the heart of the Father will begin to beat in me. And that's when I take the lead in serving well. Jesus is saying, follow my example. And I think he means follow my example in way more than just getting down and washing feet. Follow my example in the way that I showed what it means to love well. What it means to use a task to express love instead of just looking for some affirmation that I did this nice little work for you. What does it mean to have the heart of Jesus? 
I have a story that I want to close with today. And I've read this story to you before. It's been a couple of years. If you remember it, um, I think you will agree that it's worth repeating. And if it's new to you, fantastic. I think you're going to enjoy it. It's from a book called A Community Called Atonement by Scott McKnight. And this is what it says. Give us hearts as servants was the song that they were singing as I left the church service, heading off for my second 12-hour shift in a row. Weekends in the ER can be absolutely brutal. I was physically and emotionally spent as I walked up to the employee entrance. The sound of ambulances and an approaching medical helicopter were telltale signs that I would literally be hitting the ground running. Dawn, can you lock down room 15? Yelled out my charge nurse as I crawled up to the nurse's station. When someone asked for a lockdown, it usually meant a psychiatric or a combative case. Two security guards stood outside the room, biceps flexing like bouncers anticipating a drunken brawl. My eyes rolled as I walked past them and into the room to set up. The masked medics arrived with Ned, strapped and restrained to their cart. The hallway cleared with heads turned away in disgust at the smell surrounding them. They entered the room and I could see Ned with his feet hung over the edge of the cart and covered with plastic bla bags tightly taped around the ankles. The ER doctor quickly examined Ned while we settled him in. The medics rattled off their findings in the background with Ned mumbling incoherently in harmony right along with them. The smell was overpowering as they uncovered his swollen, mold-encrusted feet. After tucking him in and taking his vital signs, I left the room to tend to my other 10 patients in waiting. Returning to the nurse's station, I overheard the other nurses and techs arguing over who would take Ned as their patient. In addition to the usual lab work and tests, the doctor had, doctor had ordered a shower complete with a betadine foot scrub, antibiotic ointment, and non-adherent wraps. The charge look, nurse looked in my direction. Dawn, will you please take Ned, please? You don't have to even do the foot scrub. Just give him the sponge in the shower. I agreed and made my way over to gather the supplies and waited for the security guard to open up the hazmat shower. And as I waited with Ned, the numbness of my busyness was interrupted by an overwhelming sadness. I watched Ned, restless and mumbling incoherently to himself through a scruff of a beard and his mustache. His eyes were hidden behind his ratted, curly, shoulder-length mane. This poor shell of a man had no one to love him. I wondered about his past and what had happened to bring him to this hopelessly empty place. No one in the ER that day really looked at him, and no one wanted to touch him. They wanted to ignore him and his broken life, but as much as I tried, I couldn't. I was drawn to him. The smirking security guards helped me walk him to the shower, and as we entered the shower room, I set out the shampoo, soaps, and towels like it was a five-star hotel. In my heart... I felt that for at least 10 minutes, this forgotten man would be treated as a king. I thought that for those 10 minutes, he would see the love of Jesus. I set down the foot sponge and decided that I would do the betadine foot scrub by myself as soon as the shower was finished. I called the stockroom for two large basins and a chair. When Ned was finished in the shower, I pulled back the curtain and walked him to the throne of warmed blankets and two basins set on the floor. And I knelt at his feet, and my heart broke, and my stomach turned as I gently picked up his swollen, rotted feet. Most of his nails were black and curled over the tops of his toes. The skin was rough, 
broken and oozing pus. Tears streamed down my face while my gloved hands tenderly sponged the brown soap over his wounded feet. The room was quiet as the once mocking security guards started to help me by handing towels. As I patted the last foot dry, I looked up and for the first time, Ned's eyes looked into mine. For that one moment, he was alert, aware, and weeping as he quietly said, thank you. In that moment, I was the one seeing Jesus. He was right there all along, right where he said that he would be. That's what it means to bring the presence of the living Christ. That's what it means to be a servant leader. That's what it means to influence the world around us for good. Let's pray together. Jesus, I pray that today we would follow your example, that we would learn to do what you do, to learn to love and to lead the way that you do, so that who we are at the very core of our being reflects who you are to the world around us, and that your light and that your hope would bring change and healing and peace. Let us lead well in our families, in our workplaces, in our schools, and in our communities by the way that we influence, by bringing a presence of peace and healing and love. Thank you, God, for loving us first. Amen. I want to give you an opportunity now to respond to whatever it is that God is speaking to your heart today. You can pull out your response card from your program guide. You can fill in your name and information on the front and in the back. There's a place at the bottom for you to write out your response today. And I challenge you to consider what God may be speaking to you about living from a place of secure identity. Maybe about going the second mile for someone who you don't think deserves it and letting God do some work in your heart about that. Or maybe about what it means to bring the presence of the living God, the living Christ, to the world around you. If there's another prayer request that you have there, you can write that down. I also want to invite you through this next song to come up to the prayer wall as well. Because maybe there's someone that God is saying, you know what? You need to lead well with this person. You need to lead well by serving well. God is putting this person on your heart saying, I want to influence them. I want to influence them to know Jesus. And I encourage you to come up to the wall and to write their name and a prayer request anytime during this next song as well so that we can be praying for you and with you. But take these next few moments and just consider how God is inviting you to respond to being a person of influence, a person of servant leadership in the world today. <laughs>